0: Hello and welcome to No Guitar Is Safe. My name is Jude Gold, and you're hearing a great guitar player right now. And that, my friends, is Josh Smith. Fantastic blues player. Of course, he does so much more than play blues.
1: Yeah, hang around.
0: But I think people call him a blues player.
1: Because
0: he's got a blues streak a mile wide in his playing. You can't and he sings like a blues singer.
1: Can't get it through your mind,
0: Love this stuff. This album is called Over Your Head. It's his new album.
1: Get yours. A lot
0: of great guests on there. Joe Bonamassa, Charlie Musselwhite even his buddy Kirk Fletcher. Here's Josh and Kirk having a wah-wah war. Again, the album is called Over Your Head. The thing I like about Josh is he's... Not just an extremely powerful player.
2: You're
1: looking up, baby. I'm scanning the skies.
0: Not just a guy who Can't plays thing, notes that you can really feel, but he's also kind of a great combination of old soul and new school.
1: Until you let down your go.
0: He plays those notes and those riffs and those grooves, like an old blues guy. He's not afraid to have a really kick-ass, modern pedal board. That could have been wired by NASA. So clean, that pedal board, damn. Of course, we do talk about that pedal board, so I have to post some pictures for you. So if you head to the Facebook page, No Guitar is Safe, you'll see a picture of this pedal board that we're uh, diving deep into in a few different places. And it's cool, Josh, you know, he he knows what it means to be a modern blues man. Which means he does sessions for people, which means he built a studio in this in his backyard from the dirt up. If you've ever fantasized or had serious plans of maybe building your own studio, well. We're going to find out from Josh exactly what it takes. He's backed a lot of people He plays with Raphael Sadiq. And they, in fact, backed up Mick Jagger at the Grammys. wonder what that was like. So quick shout out to Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com. They support this podcast in a big way. I really appreciate that.
1: Been the same
0: damn thing. So, let's go. H-N-A let's hop in the copter, head just across town, just over the hill well, to Josh's lair. Down the
1: line.
2: No, the tide is safe.
0: Josh Man, I feel like you just barely even kicked that thing in. Which you're holding back already. Oh, man, I'm looking at this uh, <laughs> this pedal board. First of all, is it's an amazing contrast because I consider you to be one of the uh, more rootsy, soulful, straight ahead. A lot of people might think you're just a guitar cable amp kind of guy, right? But you actually have a supremely badass, incredibly well designed pedal board. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I. I am, for the most part, a guitar
3: cable pedal guy, except I go through a lot of stuff and just don't have it on, <laughs>
0: you know? Like, exactly.
3: I, I normally use one pedal, I would say 95% of the time, but I like to have them there in case I want them, you know? I know.
0: If anyone's just listening right now, you probably just wouldn't even know there was a pedal board there, but you've got oh, yeah. one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten pedals. There's 11, there's one buried. Oh, there's 11,
3: what's buried? There's an octave underneath two pedals, but it has no knobs, (laughs) so we buried it because I don't have to adjust (laughs) anything. There
0: you go, and then you got the badass custom audio electronics controller. Yeah,
3: the Bob Bradshaw switcher. That was, uh, you know, this pedal board is 12 years in the making of going from big rig to small rig to medium rig to, you know, figuring out exactly what I want with me most of the time, you know? It was quite a process. (laughs)
0: you started off with, I mean, this one's, you know, I would call qualify this as a large pedal board, but you were this saying that you started off with an even larger situation from Bob.
3: Yeah, well, this pedal board is large, but it's 50 pounds on the dot in the road case, so I can fly with it without paying overages. Right. But, yeah, when I moved to, to L.A., I guess now 13 years ago, I had only at that time done my own music, so I had you know a small pedal board and my amps. I all I cared about was my sound, you know. And I came here to kind of stop doing that. So I had to put together a rig that would work for sessions, for sideman stuff. And you know, as a kid who grew up flipping through Guitar Player every month, and I still have my subscription. You know, it's certainly not the longest running, but I've got uh, probably a thirty-year subscription. You know, at this point, and. Wow. You know, yeah, I mean, I've had it. I I begged my parents for that subscription, and I've never let it lapse. You know, and it's like, you know, I flipped through those magazines, and it was I would see just you know there was a name that always came up Bob Bradshaw. Eddie Van Halen had Bob Bradshaw, you know, and The Edge had Bob Bradshaw and Steve Lukather and Mike Landau, and it was like, okay, when I moved to L.A., I'm gonna go meet Bob Bradshaw. So that was one of the first things I did when I moved here was go find him. I actually one of the first gigs I had when I moved here. I had a flight gig, and it was the first time I had f- tried to fly with like my old school, childhood pedal board, and it got trashed. So I knew I had to yeah. get something worked quick. So I called Bob. I said, "Hey, uh, I just moved to town, and my pedal board just got destroyed. Can I come over and you could check it out?" And I did. And within five minutes, it was like, "Yeah, this. Let's just throw this away and start from <laughs> scratch." And he wow. built me a. Ended up not a huge rack, you know, compared to the '80s rack, but it was. A decent sized rack with a nice switcher and the controller and the most bulletproof piece of gear i ever had and besides the convenience of being able to make presets and you know control things so easily on the fly on tours which is brilliant the best part that doesn't get talked about the most about him is that when no pedals are on it's like you're plugged straight into your amp yeah yeah he just tunes those things and You know, he puts buffers and like this thing, I don't even have a buffer going. I have a switchable buffer, but right now I don't even use it because it sounds so good without the buffer. Amazing. Yeah. And that's the biggest benefit of the loop system is when nothing is on, it's like you're just plugged jack to jack straight
0: in. You're skipping all those pedals. You skip everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And that was a rack system. Did it get cumbersome having that?
3: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It was, I, I would take it to sessions. When I first moved here, I did a lot more sessions. 'Cause more sessions existed then thirteen years ago. And still that's nothing compared to like when I talked to Landau and those guys, you know, even they're not doing sessions now like, like you used to, but still thirteen years ago I could count on a certain amount of sessions every year. And yeah. so I would carry that stuff around. I'd take it on the road if I had roadies to you know, to help. But when that stuff started slowing down, it became I didn't want to carry this thing around myself all the time. So I went completely the other way and made a super small pedal board again with like five things on it. And I used that for like three, four years. Luckily, the gigs I was doing at the time, I didn't need a ton of sounds. And that was great for a while. But a few years ago, I found myself missing some of the capabilities of the Bradshaw thing. The the preset functionality, basically. Because I don't know about you, but say I get hired as a sideman for somebody. One of the things I like to do before a tour, before rehearsals start is, you know, come up with all my sounds for the, for their songs. So sometimes that involves specific delays, you know, and the Bradshaw is the perfect way to to you make a preset for every song, you know, with, you know, pro, right. it switches MIDI on my Eventide thing, and, you know, I can make presets for everything and switch, you know, a different sound for the verse, for the chorus, and it's all,
0: you know, seamless. Different combinations of pedals. That too. Instead of uh, doing uh, the old t- tap dance.
3: Even different combinations of amps. I I, I, yeah. I many times have gone, like, when I was on the road with Taylor Hicks, we had I had two amps and I had my rack with me, the Bradshaw rack, and I would be able to go from you know like the the verse of the song through my Fender style amp with you know no pedals to the chorus, the bridge of the song, going to a Marshall, switch to a Marshall with something from the Eventide, and then the solo, hit one button, it would. Put both amps on with a pedal on top of both you know like because yeah this endless amount of routing ability
0: it's hard you know? to go back when you're experiencing that and gigging that way and then you have yeah. to kind of have that capability well it's cool that you have that from this much smaller situation
3: exactly and i found this year i've gotten back to doing so much more of my own music and part of it was that some of my new tunes i used a lot of you know cool effects in the studio and i wanted to be able to quickly be able to recall that stuff so now it's funny, it's come full circle.
0: All the sounds in this board are pretty much correspond to my songs, you know? So it's kind nice. of, yeah, it's interesting. Can we hear some of your patches that you've saved? I imagine with those, you could just step on one of those buttons and call up. Yeah, so,
3: so this is just straight into the amp with, with nothing. And that's uh,
0: one of my smaller Morgans,
3: the PR-12. And I'm playing my, my main Chapin Tally, of course. That's your li-
0: your living room Morgan. <laughs> yeah, this is my living room. Because <laughs> uh, sitting PR12. right next to us is two our two half-stack Morgans
3: yeah well i have this is like a princeton reverb style i use this pretty much for all my sessions and for stuff at the house you know and small gigs my main amp is called the js40 it's like a super reverb with a three knob reverb tank built in and he made it for me so that's why it's js40 sweet and i when i can my favorite rig is to use that together with the ac40 which is like a vox ac30 but 10 more watts and uh I For some reason, about five years ago, I stumbled onto that Super Reverb AC30 combination, and it was the kind of thing where, why hadn't I used those two amps wow. together
0: ever previously? So you're running the 2x12 with the AC30 and a 4x12 with a the- 410 with the Super. I mean 410. Yeah, yeah but my amps are actually both 212s. Oh, but was, a lot
3: yeah. of times on fly days, I'll have the rental AC30 and Super. Ah, and there's, gotcha. man, something about that combination clicked for me. I had been looking for that sound for a long time. So that's about five years, that's what I've been doing, that, that combination of sounds. Yeah. Do, you, wait, do you
0: run stereo into those channels or you just run parallel?
3: Okay. I do run stereo into them, but for the most part of the night, it's a dual mono thing. Like, right. I, I never have the sound guy pan. Me out front stereo or anything, because most of the time, all the pedals are in front of both amps. The only stereo pedal going on on this pedal board is the H9. So there are times when I have yeah. some, maybe a delay that ping pongs or something, but it's not extreme where I need them panned you know, out in the house. You know?
0: I've been curious about the H9 pedal because you see the advertisements that even tied and yeah. it does a million different things. and yeah.
3: well, How do you use it? What are some of the things that it does? It does everything. You know, I'm a big
0: eventide fan and
3: uh this pedal i think is kind of it's like the future of pedals and i'm waiting for like the double one because i know it's going to be coming sometime soon because the only thing is you can only load one algorithm at a time with this pedal so while it does delays reverbs pitch choruses trims but you can only have one the second they come out with the one where you can pick two blocks and stack (laughs) them you know like either parallel or which way you go through one to the other. It's like it'll be game over. But the other thing is, for sessions, this pedal has been the best session pedal I ever got because it controls Bluetooth with your phone or your iPad. So I sit my iPad on my music stand when I get to a session, and I have unlimited control of a million sounds, and I don't have to bend over to my old rack to switch <laughs> knobs. I don't have to bend down to the pedal. I got you know a million sounds at my fingertips, right? You know, without you know bending down, and it's, I can give producers more
0: quicker what they asked for you know what damn I mean? you are like the high tech old school blues player <laughs> I I am
3: I well I've always been into gear you know I yeah. just I I can't help it I I like to be up on what's new for the most part I you know if it sounds digital I don't dig it you know but if it, it's convenient stuff that, you know, if I can find digital things that don't feel digital, I'll use them. That's the only digital thing on this whole board, you know, other than I guess you would, the switcher's not digital, you know, it's really completely analog, just MIDI, you know, right. and I have the flashback on there, that's digital, uh, the TC flashback. The rest of these are all very old school, vintage style pedals. You totally, know? well, can I hear the H9? Yeah, so this is one of my main sounds on the H9, it's a Leslie sound. This is one that I made, so it's a little different than one of their factory bracelets. The cool thing about the H9, too, is I had Bob make me a dedicated button for the H9 hot switch. And the hot switch can be assigned to be completely different things for every patch. So it's like on the Leslie, it's I I made it a break. So it's like and it breaks the Leslie right. for that Clapton and then speed it back. Beautiful. Um, you know, but that's cool. I, I have that hot switch where it could be in a delay it can be hold you know for a delay like the Eric Johnson hold repeat thing or it could change yeah. the size of the room on a reverb or it could turn the feedback up it could be any combination right. of things so I have that and then I also had Bob add me a switch that this is really cool he'd never done this before it's a switch that goes between two of my most used presets on the h9 without having to have it be in a preset in my switcher so when I hit this button it automatically goes to either a really big spring or- when I need that right away, or when I hit it again, it goes to that Leslie. So I can, when I'm in the middle of any other preset or anything going on, I can quickly get wow. Leslie or Big Spring when
0: I need it because those are two I use a lot and they'll come up in my mind like, let's do something right here and I want to get to it fast. You know? Well, that spring sounds good coming through the Morgan. I had assumed that I was hearing an actual tank. Oh, you were. You were. Okay. That was just
3: added on top of it. Like right, right. now,
0: it's just just
3: the tank. This there is a little more on top of it. It's like yeah. a longer. It's just so I
0: can get bigger right when I need it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's weird sometimes to throw a digital reverb in front of an overdriven preamp. Of sometimes
3: a- I I have to tweak them a lot the the yeah. digital reverbs because yeah. I, I, reverb is the one effect I have to have. Like I I can go without gain, I can go without delay. I almost never use. I can you know, but a, reverb is is part of what I do, and it's like I especially spring style reverb, you know. So. Most of my amps have them in them and have great ones. So yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I do. I I kind of like layering reverbs. There's a thing about like, you know, getting that '80s rock tone where you want that plate reverb sound. You know, yep. if you're doing the Eric Johnson thing or the Eddie thing. You know what I mean? It's nice to have a fuzz or a Marshally sound with a plate reverb after it, like you would in the studio. You know? Can you dial
0: that up right now?
3: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I have a sound like here's, you know as silly as it sounds here's a sound with a plate reverb and a fuzz and a delay you know so it's kind of the ej thing
0: That sounds great. Is that the third stone? What is that? That's
3: the Burkos third stone fuzz, which is. I've been on the quest. I have a real vintage uh, germanium fuzz face, an original. It's worth a lot of money, but it sounds different every day, and it sounds different like, if I move it six inches on the floor. So Eric Johnson wasn't crazy when he talks about that stuff. <laughs> Dude, you know what? That's a good point because. He's not crazy at all, man. It's, it's over. I, I hear it. I hear the battery difference all the time. In fact, one of the crazy things on this board—I don't know if you can see—next to my power supply, I have a battery supply, and it's got a thumb wheel on it. I'll show you. I have four batteries in there. And it's so I can run the dirt pedals on batteries instead of off the power supply because they sound better. And not only that, inside that battery supply, I have different batteries that I like better with different pedals. So with the Fuzz, <laughs> it's a black cat carbon battery because it sounds the best with that pedal.
0: You are hardcore, man. Dude, but I, its he's not crazy. I can hear it. Yeah. Always. Well, you can see with an old germanium resistor or something. Yeah. Maybe in, next to the transformer of a Marshall head, like there's weird magnetic interplays gotta have well, some kind well, of the things
3: too. the batteries an alkaline battery is very stable and when it dies it dies relatively like you hear it sometimes but normally it just boom it's gone a carbon battery dies forever it'll last oh. for a year and it's constantly going down so it gets to this sweet spot where it gets to eight volts or seven volts where oh, you're man. like wow that sounds great and also a carbon battery is so like sensitive to the power that is being sucked so say the pedal is old and you hit it really hard with a big it almost sags the battery because it it needs all this power right that minute when you really hit it and the battery sags down and carbon ones sag even more so it adds this this feel thing to it i noticed that right away when i started especially with fuzzes and dirt pedals that i really preferred carbon batteries over alkaline
0: yeah wow that's fascinating well cool i want to hear some more of this this tone is too delicious i gotta I, i mean what should i play for you Oh, that tone? All right. so satisfying i still remember when i first saw you i think it was not long after i moved to la right and uh, i think maybe your wife had contacted me i, said, I think hey, so yeah. welcome town come check out josh yeah yeah so yeah we went to the club on ventura boulevard cozies, cozies. which isn't there anymore I mean, yeah and i think kirk fletcher even sat in with you that night probably And he's on your new record I mean, kirk's my best that's yeah. my brother yeah. I know. You, yeah he's there over yeah. here he might have told me about it i don't know anyway yeah you blew my mind i was like okay Thanks, i gotta man. hang with that cat someday And you had the fat tone; like it was just something really bulletproof about the way you were playing. It was just like whatever you note you hit, it was strong.
1: Man, that's thank
0: you for
3: saying that, (laughs) man. (laughs) That's a you know as silly, well not as silly, but as you know, crazy as that sounds, that's been a, a huge like. You know, I used to. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say make lists, but I used to have goals. You know, and besides being you know finding my own voice which is always goal number one and it's still goal number one you know it's it's having authority in everything i do and i've i've tried to you know follow this path of like no matter how much new crap i learn on the guitar how sophisticated it might be how harmonically or impressive technically or whatever things. That, Cause you know, I'm like everybody else. I sit home and shed every day. You know, I'm, I love this instrument. I love playing. It's my whole life, you know? So I'm learning new stuff all the time, but I'm trying to quickly assimilate it into my style. And okay. my goal is to always make whatever I play feel like, you know, the way that BB King feels to me when I hear him. And nice. Albert King feels to me when I hear him. I want to play everything I play with as much conviction as those guys did. You it's know?
0: A, yeah, it's a thing, man. It's, some people just have it. I, I, it's hard to describe, but it's almost like the note has a backbone to it, man. It's like that's it, the note is taking a stand for something. Yeah, I yeah. feel that with you're playing. You
3: just want to... I, I, I want to mean everything I play. Yeah,
0: yeah. So even
3: if I play something fast or, you know, that you know those guys would have never played or something, I, I want it to be because... I really heard that right then. You know what I mean, and I could not play it because I I heard it and I it has to happen right there. You know,
0: what was the first time that you ever grabbed something like that where you heard it? Maybe from Albert King or BB King. You guys started so young, so
3: young, man. I I started playing guitar when I was six. I Why? got the guitar when I was three. Uh, <laughs> man, it's interesting. That's an interesting story. Um, the day my sister was born, so I'm three years older than my sister. So I was three. And she was born four days after my birthday, so I had just turned three, but my mom was, you know, hugely pregnant, so my birthday, my third birthday, I don't want to say it was overlooked, but it was like the baby was coming any day, you know, my grandparents were in town, everybody was ready for my sister, and I don't know, my dad, for some reason, (laughs) the day that she was born, he came home, you know, they were still, my mom was still at the hospital, she was born... And I stayed at my house with my grandma and my dad came home after she was born to tell me, you know, she's here and we're going to go in a little bit to see her, but he brought home a guitar and a tennis racket, And for you, it was, yeah, for me, <laughs> for like birthday. as a gift, you know, but it's four days late, but it was like, I think he didn't want me to feel left out that he knew all this attention was going to be on my sister oh, right sweet. that moment. And my dad doesn't play music and and only one person in my whole family does actually my uncle and it was my mom's brother, and he lives out here. But he just loves music. My parents love music, you know. My dad has an yeah. enormous vinyl collection, and that's all we did was listen to music while sports were on. But we wouldn't listen to the sports; we'd listen to music, you know. And
0: so that would have been about eighty-two or eighty-three.
3: Eighty-two, yeah.
0: I can't believe it. I mean, I, I, I don't feel like I'm that much older than you, but gosh, in eighty-three, I think. I was a like 13-year-old kid who snuck out of the house and went and saw Stevie Ray Vaughan at the club before yes. he was famous in San Francisco.
3: See, I never got to... I, I missed a lot of that, you know what I mean? But I can't help it. You're born when you're born. But it's like, yeah, he, they bought me that guitar, and, and we love sports, all sports, especially baseball. But at that time, my both my parents were playing a lot of tennis, so I think he thought I wanted a, I would want a tennis racket because they do it, you know? So he bought me both, and I could have cared less about the tennis racket. All I cared about from that moment on was guitar, like, and baseball. And I kind of played both growing Like, when I turned six, I asked for guitar lessons. So they found me this, uh, well, first they found me, like, one of those scam, like, a school where you sign up. Right. Where So I took two lessons, and within two lessons, they were trying to sell my parents a Strat and a new amp. And I had a, a student acoustic guitar, you know what I mean? So after that, my parents asked some people for recommendations and they found this kid who had just graduated from UM Miami uh, as a jazz student. He was like 22 years old, you know? And I, I went to him for lessons for the first year, probably. And oh, cool. he pulled my parents aside. They like to tell the story. I can't remember it, but they say he pulled them aside after two lessons and said, you know, nothing about my playing, but that my time. They said, man, Josh's time is like way better than a lot of adults that I play with already. And they they didn't know what that meant because they're not musicians, you know? That's
0: so important if we're talking about that thing of the note having that power. It's yeah. time, and people don't realize how important time is.
3: Man, I think, I don't know about you, but I think great time is what separates the absolute greatest players of all time from the other great players. You know what I mean? Yeah, like I think you're right. When you listen to Jimmy or... Man, you know what I was listening to the other day? The isolated guitar from uh, "Beautiful Girls," Eddie. His time is freaking ridiculous. Is he swinging like a motherfucker? Yeah. And, and 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 it's like the time is unreal. And man, that's what I th- listen to Schofield when he's soloing, the how behind the beat he is, but only when he wants to be. And it's like. Man, that's that's what separates the absolute greatest guys from the good guys. You know?
0: Totally, I'm not surprised that you were showing some good rhythm back then, because <laughs> you pretty much started gigging when
3: I started gigging when I was 12. Um, that's pretty. Yeah, good. so I kind of i I went along for six years, yeah. carrying that guitar everywhere, playing. And I was playing baseball, too, and it quickly became apparent that as much as I wanted to be the first person ever to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Baseball Hall of Fame, that I was going to have to choose. And I wasn't as good at baseball as yeah. I was <laughs> And uh, so I kind of gave up baseball right about that high school time age wow. and uh, i focused all my energy on guitar and were you a specialty like first baseman or second baseman. second baseman second baseman i was all hustle yeah but once once kids got bigger and stronger right around that ninth grade thing and started to see 80 and 90 miles an hour and then breaking balls yeah that was it for me i couldn't hit that
0: stuff you know interesting well yeah you were distracted yeah
3: so i the summer between eighth and ninth grade I had gotten to a point where I was getting pretty frustrated because I was pretty good player already. Guitar player. I, you know, not to toot your own horn, but it's like, I could play by that point. Like, you know, like a real guitar player. And And this is down like near Fort Lauderdale, Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. And kids, my age who played music at that time, it was the tail end of heavy metal. And it was really grunge was, was coming in. And, I had no interest in that stuff, really, especially grunge. Like, you know, I had Steve Vai posters and Eddie posters, but once grunge I didn't really get, you know? But all I really loved was B.B. King and Albert King. My parents listened to nothing but Blues, jazz, soul, rock and roll. So it was Rolling Stones, Allman Brothers, B.B. King, Albert King, Robert Johnson. And my mom, she loved Motown. So it was Otis Redding and Wilson Pickett and, you know, Stacks and Motowns, Temptations and, and, you know, stuff like that. So I had great music going on in the house all the time. So that's what I liked. And kids my age at my schools or, you know, that I would meet out and about, they didn't like that. They didn't listen to that. It wasn't they didn't like it. They didn't know anything about it, they didn't listen to that music. And I was proficient enough that I, I wanted to be playing with people other than just sitting in my room. And so the only option was kind of adults. Go go play yeah. with adults, you know. So my parents started taking me to these jams, you know, open jams. And it was that changed my life, for sure.
0: What was, like, the first epiphany you had of, like, maybe studying a B.B. King or Albert Collins or somebody? Did any lick that you grabbed?
3: Yeah, it was probably... Yeah, certainly, BB King first—the mm-hmm. slow blues lick. You know what I mean? It's uh, there's no uh, that, that stuff. You know, and it's still got hear some more of that. Hold on. Yeah, so it's like. You know, I heard that stuff
0: <laughs> I don't want And the that.
3: second he played that That intro lick To me, to this day It's like It's literally like Like a Cupid arrow Or a, a gunshot To my heart It's like Bam Bam I feel that stuff instantly. It makes the hair stand up on my arms, you know? You named your kid after that stuff. I named my kid after that stuff. Yeah, my I didn't sis-
0: even realize Riley was B.B. King's first name.
3: Yeah, his, his real name was Riley B. King. Uh, I don't I don't know what the B stands for with B.B. I never knew. Because in B.B., it's Blues Boy. But right. his real middle name starts with a B as well. But I don't know what That's it a is. It's So when my son was born, I wanted to name him Riley. And my grandfather on my mother's side's name was Bertram, and he was an incredible man, so I wanted to honor him as well. So my son's name is Riley B. Smith. (laughs) Badass. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but I heard that stuff, and it just, nothing, to this day, nothing strikes me as that nothing makes me that as emotional as that music you know the way albert king lays into stuff the way bb yeah makes you feel you know it's it's still my favorite thing to this day is to kick off a shuffle or slow blues and just lay into that and just just not even just shut my brain off and go where where i'm feeling you know and try to that's an interesting thing about being an improviser it's how do you explain you know you're trying to make a room full of people most who don't play any instrument connect with what you're playing on an on an instrument you know without opening your mouth a lot of times although i sing as well it's like that's a man it's such a weird that that happens is amazing you know what i mean to be able to convey emotion just that way
0: you know yeah it's amazing guitar is pretty good for that in the right (laughs) hands it
3: you know it's other than i would say saxophone or something like that yeah, I don't know how you can find a more expressive instrument than the guitar. You know what I mean? As much as you can be incredibly soulful on a piano or a organ or whatever, it's still not the same. You know what I mean? Your yeah. fingers aren't on the piano strings.
0: You know what I mean? It's like... Yeah, there's a strangling factor of the guitar. You're almost like... Just the way you're talking about, like, almost torturing that battery earlier. You're, we're almost kind of torturing these things a little bit, you know?
3: Absolutely. You're And you learn over the years you know how to do it even further how to where to lighten up where to dig in how to twist this note
0: just that way to
3: get that you know emotional response you know
0: so what kind of tunes were you playing when you started going to these adult jams were you mostly blues jams mostly
3: blues jams it would be you know you would you'd show up you'd sign the sign in list and you normally get to play for two songs and you'd get thrown to get, there'd be a house band. It's like it is now. There'd yeah. be a house band and, you, but then you'd get thrown up with, you know, random guys. And I didn't know anything about playing, you know, with adults. So the second I, I, you know, one of the first songs I probably played had to be, you know, sweet home in Chicago or Kansas city or Mustang Sally, stuff like that, you know, messing with the kid, you know, standard blues standards. Yeah. And, but, man, I got up on stage the first time. It was at this legendary club called the Musicians' Exchange, which is, ended up being like the club where I spent all my free time and saw many great things and sat in with a lot of guys. And I got up on the stage, and we kicked off the song, and I'm playing rhythm, playing rhythm, and it's my turn to take a solo. And I take a solo, and the jam at this club was well-attended because it was a well-known club, and every Monday night was their Bluesberry jam. And uh, I started my solo, and probably within four bars – The whole room was like clapping and freaking out, mostly because I was four feet tall and I had on a Yankee baseball cap. I was a little kid with long hair, you know, and the guitar was bigger than me, you know. But man, the second people like started clapping for what I was playing on guitar, I could never go back. Like that was absolutely the moment where I knew...
0: This is all I will do for the rest of my life, you know? Yeah, wow. For sure. So then you started, you formed your own bands in high school and stuff? Well,
3: or? I kept, I started branching, going to more, as many jams as I could. And one of the jams at another club, a, a friend, not a friend, but a guy who saw me play at the first jam, and he's just, was a blues fan, not a musician. He said, you should go to this other club called Club M on a Thursday night. Uh, they let you play longer. I was like, oh, that sounds great. So I asked my parents, could we go there? And granted, so keep in mind, this was the summer between 8th and ninth grade. So I wasn't going out on Monday and Thursday nights during school. It was summer break. Uh, I was 12. And so they took me this other jam on a Thursday night, and a band called the Rhino Cats hosted this jam. and You know, three adults. It was guitar, bass, and drums. The guitar player played keyboards as well. And they were, man, at the time, I didn't realize this, but they were really great musicians, you know, and... So I started going every week to that jam. And same reaction, I got that reaction everywhere because I could I could play and I was a kid. You know, so it was a novelty and whatever. But so those guys, the Rhino Cats, they started noticing that people started coming on Thursdays to see me play. You know, I started having fans. And nice. they asked me and my parents, how would I feel about like playing real gigs with them? Just, you know, booking gigs where I played with them all night. And, you know, I think they, they realized that, hey, maybe we... Promote that we have a twelve-year-old, thirteen-year-old guy playing with us. We can book some more local gigs and maybe get yeah. some better crowds and things like that.
0: You told them as long as you guys share the drink tickets with yeah, me. Yeah, right.
3: exactly. So I was like, heck yeah, heck yeah, I'm into that. My parents were like a little ambivalent because the summer was coming to an end, so we knew it would be like I could only play on the weekends kind of thing. So and I had to, I had to kind of make a deal with my parents that I wouldn't let my schoolwork suffer. And so that was it. I kind of struck that deal and I started playing with those guys and pretty much all ninth and 10th grade. That's all I did was play with those guys. And we got actually like in that first year we started to like get, you know, pretty a pretty big following around South Florida enough so that we would start touring Florida on weekends. We drive to Tampa Orlando and cause people wanted to hear us. And there was a, a big magazine down there at the time like like we have here, you know, we don't have any here, here anymore. But it was like New Times or whatever. But they had Rag and Jam Magazine. And they came out every week. It was like the music magazines. And they had an award show every year for those magazines. And they would vote on the best statewide. First it would be like regional local bands and then statewide, which was the best. And that first year it was like Rhino Cats with Josh Smith won best blues band in Florida, you know. So we started playing nice. festivals and going around. And I was... I couldn't have been, I was like so thrilled, you know, I was playing a lot and that the $75 I would make from those gigs or hundred dollars, I would stick it in an envelope. First thing I did was bought a Strat, you know? And I was like, I'd want it. I never had a, a real Strat. Well, what were
0: you gigging on before you had that?
3: <laughs> okay. So yeah, let's, this is a good story. I had my first acoustic. Then I had a bigger acoustic as I aged. I got a, a fake Strat, like a three quarter size. That was my first electric. That's then, the
0: one you were playing, or is that before you started playing bars? That was before.
3: This is yeah. like when I'm nine right. years old. So then when I was 11 or 12, before, right before I started going to jams, an interesting thing happened. Derek Trucks also is from Florida. Sure. But he's from northern Florida, from Jacksonville. Yeah, I've heard of him. And I, Yeah, I started hearing about this kid. Derek Trucks and he was coming to South Florida to play a gig. So I I my parents were like we should go see him. That's what you want to do, you know. And he's play, he's playing gigs. Maybe you could do it too. So we went to see him play. Blew my mind, you know. And we became friends and so we started
0: What was he running that? When I saw him he had like he two He already Supers.
3: had the SG back then. It was a super with those same pile driver speakers in there, the car audio speakers. And so this is we went to see him play. And then a couple months later, he was coming back down to South Florida again, and we had met. So he was playing a place two nights in a row, Friday and Saturday. So we went back on the Friday, and him and I hung the whole night, you know, on his breaks and all that, because I was the only other kid in the room, you know. Uh, Are
0: you you guys about the same age? We're
3: the same age, yeah. Yeah. And um, I asked, like, I knew he was playing the next night. So I was like, I was like to my dad, I'm going to ask him if he wants to have a sleepover. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, hey, you want to sleep over at my house tonight, and we'll bring you back to the gig tomorrow? And his dad was with him. And his dad was like, ask Derek, are you cool with that? And he's like, yeah. So Derek slept over at my house. We stayed up till like five in the morning, like listening to music and playing guitar and uh, went back to his gig the next night. But so at the time he was playing an SG. So that made a big impression on me because all I had was I had I had that three quarter scale guitar. And then the, the music store I was hanging out by my house had nothing but 80s guitars. So the first real electric I had bought was a Charvette. Not even a charvette a cheap Charvette with a Floyd on it, red with black crackle finish. Nice. Still have it, it's at my parents' house. And um but when I saw Derek with that SG, I realized, yeah, this Charvet is not what I'm supposed to be playing. Like I need a more vintagey style and guitar. But I didn't know what vintage was at the time, you know what I mean? I just knew guitars was a guitar. So we went through the classifieds after I had hung with Derek and I found a sixty seven SG for two hundred and fifty dollars. And I Damn. forced
0: my parents to buy it for me. I wish I had a time machine. Yeah. It's a good price. <laughs> yeah, I know.
3: It was, it was a Mutt. In retrospect, like at the time, to me, it was just, this is 67SG. It was trashed. The pickups were ripped out of it. The headstock had broken off. It was, a, it was a Mutt guitar, you know, but I didn't know anything about that stuff. So I got that guitar. I played that for a while. And I was mostly playing that when I first started going to these jams. Were
0: you playing slide, too, or?
3: No, I never really played slide. It's enough. an interesting
0: thing. Some people gravitate towards slide, and- yeah, I'm, I love playing slide, but I'm it's very, it's not my strength because I i just like having all my fingers involved.
3: Yeah, I'm trying now to get more into it and yeah. like try and play in a standard tuning because when I was a kid, I was trying to always play in open G or E so I could do the Dwayne thing or like what Derek was doing or, or the more traditional like Elmore James stuff and Robert Johnson stuff, which is a lot of that is in D <sighs> or G. But I'm I like playing in it in standard now because I can kinda of work around the slide and play oh, chords yeah.
0: and bad, for sessions too, you get it night when you throw down a nice slide track, the man, you're rewarded later. You hear it back and like, yeah. damn I'm glad I did that. Well, it's st- such a
3: vocal thing, you know. Yeah. And that's what the thing about Derek that I, I don't think people realize. From from that age, from twelve, he already had like Man, he didn't have all the vocabulary that he has now, you know, and and all the facility because, you know, whatever, you get older, you learn more shit, you get better. But he had the voice. He already had that just unbelievable soul in his playing. And it was like, that was was quite a big moment for me because it made me realize, you know what, this is not impossible. I should be playing gigs with adults. He was doing it. You know what I mean? Like, I should be doing that, you know? And it was a big influence on me. And sure enough, a year later... I started doing those gigs with those guys, and there was a club called Cheers in Fort Lauderdale that had two stages, and it was open till 4 in the morning. And it became almost like my – we played there every Friday for like two you're years. With the Rhino Cats? Yeah, with the Rhino Cats. We played there every Friday. But Derek would come there once every two months and play the other stage. So we'd play <laughs> – we each played four 45-minute sets back and forth until 4 a.m. And you're talking two 13-year-old dudes. Wow, his band would play, my band would play, his band would play, my band four forty fives alternating sets, but man, I was I didn't know, but at the time I was, man, I was cutting my teeth, I was learning so much on ob, on the job training, which I tell kids now now that I'm you know I'm thirty six. But now I'm not the youngest guy anymore. I get There's all these kids now who c- come to me asking me questions, and it's like, that's my number one. I tell them, on-the-job training, man. Take every crappy gig you can get. I don't care if it's for free. Just play, 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 play. I learned more playing with those adults in that first year than I ever learned from six years of guitar lessons. You know what I mean? Like
0: Yeah, yeah, you had your own adult backing band
3: yeah (laughs) and they were good like i didn't know i didn't (laughs) know that i didn't know jazz i didn't know you know i just played i was just trying to play but like the guitar player in that band he was a very schooled musician he played keyboards uh he was all about steely dan i at the time i thought what is this steely dan stuff that's not blues you know i didn't care about those things at the time but it was preparing (laughs) me he would start showing me hey no the the chord in this song is you got to play it's it's a flat nine or whatever. And he would, I'm like, what's that? You know? And he would, no, no, no. You got to learn these chords, you know? Yeah.
0: Opening your ears. And I
3: didn't know how important that was at the time.
0: What were some of the tunes that you guys used to play regularly with the Rhino Cast? Like, what well, was Well, we standard? played a lot of Stevie. We I'll played a side. lot of
3: Jimi Hendrix. We played a lot of Allman Brothers and stuff like that. One of, man, for some reason, as a kid, I was obsessed. I was obsessed with Hey Joe, man. Like, there's something about Hey Joe where... I, I, I it was when I picked up the guitar. The first thing I played all the time was I Was just obsessed with that sound and then he had the live version where they play like It had that little intro where he's by himself and then he played the real intro again
1: Where you going with that gun in your hand? Hey, Joe. Where you going with that gun in your hand? And then there's that one video where Jimmy played the The Beatles tune
3: wow. and it was like, man, I was obsessed with that tune. So what we played that. That was the first song I ever sang live, too.
0: When did the, you start singing?
3: 13 they used to, people used to start telling me if you're gonna do this seriously, you gotta sing, man. And it was so painful at first because I hadn't even gone through puberty <laughs> yet. You know what I mean? And it was like I was like a little kid oh, yeah. trying to sing blues. Like, yeah. but I I had to force myself. To, I would sing one and two songs a night mm-hmm. sometimes just to force myself to do it.
0: Nice. Mm-hmm.
3: But yeah, we'd play we'd play Stevie, <laughs> Hendrix, Allman Brothers, okay. Leonard Skinner. And then you know, Muddy Waters and BB King and Albert King, and man, I was just
0: I was learning all this stuff on the fly. I still feel like I didn't get to hear your solo on that. Man, I used to,
3: (laughs) man, you used to get the octave going so I could do the count us off. I love the leg. Mm -hmm. And then my favorite Hendrix Mm -hmm. lick.
0: what is this guitar is beautiful this chapin? chapin oh my chapin yeah
3: so this chapin. is uh i've had this guitar 10 years and when i got this guitar it, it instantly became my number one i was a strat guy for most of my life and when i got this i had owned other tellies but i'd never like to me they were more like oh i use a telly only when i have to get this specific sound or whatever but then when i got this guitar, it became apparent. I was a telly guy in denial my whole life.
0: Like I should have been playing a telly. I think a lot forever. of people come to tellies after a winding journey through various guitars. Man, yeah, I I
3: agree. And you know what it is about them? They just there's t- truly in my opinion the only guitar that does everything. You know, convincingly. Like you can play anything on a telly you know i i can take this guitar to a jazz gig or an r&b gig or a funk gig a country gig a rock gig you know you can certainly you know play power chords more powerfully on a telly than a strat you know what i mean it's like there's just something about them and also the the design of a telly it just it, it speaks to the things that I like, which is it's not very comfortable. It's you know the edges are sharp and hard, yeah. and the bridge is, has three saddles for six strings. It doesn't intonate perfectly, <laughs> but man, it's explosive. You know what I mean? Totally. It just, notes jump out of Telecasters. It's you a know? plank.
0: It is really the only guitar that you could bring to any genre and get respect. I
3: absolutely, yeah. absolutely, man. I you know, and I love Strats to death. I played them most I mean you know I loved Stevie so much and Jimmy that you know i played strats so much but now I I realize when I play strats now they put me in a different headspace like when I pick up a strat I think about Jimmy I think about it's impossible for me not to correlate stratocaster with certain sounds you know whereas when I play this guitar I'm just me
0: you know and that's always important <laughs> It's funny when I ran into you at the at the amp show yeah which is not too far from here. Yeah, really close. Every year, what a riot that is. Love that thing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you had that Les Paul copy. That's I just got that, trying. yeah. And uh, you you own that guitar just as much as you own the telly, which I love when you're on stage, you own that shit too. But you had, like, telephone wire, piano wire in that thing. What are oh, you running you see, on that?
3: I run all my guitars have 13 through 56 on them. Yeah.
0: yeah so you see a lot of people, you know, maybe play, like, get up to 52s. But 56 is kind of the next next ball game. That's a
3: <laughs> yeah, well, especially my G is 26 unwound G, which is the heaviest unwound string you can get from anybody. That's the one that kills everybody when they pick up my guitars. And, yep. you know, you can go a lot of ways trying to explain the reasoning behind why i use those strings it's a few factors i started playing so young that one of the factors i think is that man as i started growing i started on i don't even think i started on nines i started on tens and man i just got stronger i played so much and i I physically started getting bigger that on tens i start breaking strings quicker you know what i mean and so i was like So I said, what do I do? And the guy at the music store said, go up a gauge. So I went to 11s, you know. And then I think I was playing 11s. And at this point, I was gigging a lot. You know, I was 13. Yeah, I was 13. I was gigging already, playing 11s. And this place, Musicians Musicians Exchange, used to get amazing live bands from out of town national acts and i would hang out there constantly and even for a time my dad ran the kitchen there and i think he did it mostly so i could go with him on the weekends and hang out in that in that club all the time superhero dad yeah i (laughs) think i would go early you know with him and he'd he'd be in the kitchen getting ready and i would just watch these guys sound check you know what i mean so i'd always have my guitar and i'd bring i brought a little amp to sit in the back room in the kitchen and i'd play so they'd be loading in and i'd be back there playing they'd hear you know some good guitar playing naturally they'd come see well who's that what's going on back there and a lot of times they'd see it's a kid and then they'd say oh you want to sit in with us tonight so i got to sit in with a lot of my heroes at the time blues guys such Uh, as well i think i'm trying to think which was first but you know guys like elvin bishop and tinsley ellis and jimmy thackeray and junior walker and the All Stars. i I played shotgun with junior walker and the all-stars when i was 12 years old
1: Shotguns. shoot for run now, do the jerk, baby, do the jerk now.
3: Yeah, you know, I played that with Junior Walker before he passed away, you know what I mean? And it Damn. was like, uh, and Mac Guitar Murphy, you know, and it was like, to me, that was like, holy crap. McIntyre Murphy, Blues Brothers, you know? He played with Helen Wolf. You know what I mean? It was like I got up and played Sweet Home Chicago with him. He's the guy who played that in the beginning of the Blues Brothers that Come on. You know what I mean? That's him, you know? And it's like I, he, he let me and then and I was a kid. I I wasn't yeah. naive. I knew they were letting me sit in because I was a kid and people dug the, the audience would would always be like, "Yay, look at that kid!" You know. But man, yeah. I was just getting to do all this cool stuff, play with these guys, and so I would I would hang in that club. I forget what the beginning of this story was about. Going oh, the string gauges. gauges. Okay, so so I started sitting with these guys, and this one band came in from out of town. They weren't really a well-known band. But I was hanging out, and they heard me play. I forget that. I, honestly, I forget what band it was, which is normally I'm really sharp on this stuff. But it was some band, whatever, and they asked if I wanted to sit in. But I didn't have my guitar with me for some reason. So the guitar player was like, you can use my guitar. Of course, he neglected to mention that he had 13s on his vintage Strat. All I saw was a vintage Strat. I was excited. I'm going to play this dude's vintage Strat. They call me up. He hands me his guitar, and my fingers don't even move the strings. So I was like, What? what's going on here, man? And he told me, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. These are, yeah, there's, there's 13s on here. I was like 13s. And I knew Stevie played 13s, but I'd never tried it. You know, that next day I was like, I need to go to the music store and get a set of 13s. Cause that's never happening to me again. No one's <laughs> going to hand me a guitar and I can't play their guitar. So <laughs> I did. I went out and I bought a pack of 13s and I put them on my guitar. I think my neck probably moved like this. I had no yeah. idea what I was doing, you
0: know? There, but, it went up to fifty six too. I don't know if it went. It was the whatever
3: pre made set of thirteens I could find, which probably had a wound G, which I you know I didn't even right. know. And but from that moment forward, I was like, I'm playing these strings, and then I started hearing the difference in sound with the strings. It's such a different sound. Yeah, and it was yeah. like, man, you know, people ask me all the time about, well, how do you get the Stevie sound, you know? And it's, man. If you don't put those strings on your guitar, you're not going to get that sound. Yeah, it's, and it's, if you don't use four amps turned up yeah. to that, push that much air, you're not going to get... Yeah, if you NLP. play a Strat with a <laughs> Tube Screamer and a Super Reverb, you're going to sound similar. But you're not going to get that sound unless you're pushing that air and you're using no strings. Yeah. You know? that one dumble might help, too. That, and that's <laughs> 150 watts. That's how much air he's pushing. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like
0: he was a, When I saw him when I was 13... I was sitting right in front, and he was the first guy I saw that had the plexiglass in front of the amps. Oh, right, yeah. It was so loud, but it was good loud.
3: Oh, yeah. he. I mean, I never saw him live. When he passed in 90, I was, you know, 11 years old, 10 years old. I was 10. I hadn't turned 11 yet because my birthday's in October. And I knew who he was, you know, and he had just—they didn't do a family-style tour, but I remember my dad buying family-style because it had come out before he passed and I dug Family Style, and I just started to kind of get into, you know, I was into blues, but I was more into, into real, like, B.B. King at that time. I didn't know new blues any. I didn't know there was new blues, really. at that. I was 10 years old, you know, and so I, I regret. I think we could have seen him on the tour with Jeff Beck, and I we didn't, you know.
0: You know, I saw that tour, too, and that was phenomenal, and Jeff Beck was phenomenal, but I swear, man, the magic was that first tour right after, see, I was in the Bay Area, like I said, I think it maybe it was about to go into freshman year of high school, and the radio DJs like, David Bowie's guitarist has a new solo release, we're gonna play it, I'm like, I was expecting, because everything on the radio like then was like The Fix, which I love, yeah, yeah. or Oingo Boingo, The Police. Yeah. It was like, and I thought it was gonna be like David Bowie kind of stuff. Yeah. I love that jam. Dude, check this I out. I love that jam.
3: As a completely unrelated, here's my Let's Dance preset.
1: Wait, hold on.
0: <laughs> Let's do that together. One, three. two, three,
1: four. I love that.
0: And I bet that that's Ooh. probably Nile Rodgers on that part. That's know, absolutely Nile yeah. Rodgers. Actually, it,
3: I asked uh, Rafael Sadiq, who I've played with for the last seven years. He's really close with Nile. And now, a while back, used to be around a lot at Raphael's studio. So I picked his brain like crazy on Let's Dance and on on uh, Family Style. Because he wow. produced Family Style for Jimmy and Stevie. Because oh, Stevie nice. Stevie ended up making a nice bond with him from the Let's Dance stuff, you know?
0: Yeah. But yeah, so they the DJ finally plays the Steve Ray Vaughan. I couldn't believe what I'm hearing. I'm hearing this Texas blues stuff with, you know, the big Phil sounding. He's like he's yeah. imitating the horn section. Yeah. With all those different parts oh, on such Pride and Joy. It's a huge sound, yeah. And uh, it was definitely cool to, to have that. So then I got to go, I snuck out kind of and saw him. Yeah. First club gig I ever went to. And the really? album the album was out. Well, I mean, I'm probably seeing it. So Texas Flood was out. Texas Flood was out. And it was. It was a big club. It was the Kabuki nightclub, but still he was kinda unknown, man. He was sure. f- out there just fighting. i you know, there's two opening bands I had to wait through. I'm looking at the side of the stage and seeing like ten Stratocasters lined up. Probably had the two supers, right? He had at least two supers, yeah. Yeah. And uh yeah, I mean it was just like Texas had come and visited the Bay Area. Man, it was I, like
3: I can't imagine what it would have been like in eighty three to see that when he was just he was taking no prisoners because he, he was making his name. You know I mean? He was stating his claim. And I, that's the way I feel mm-hmm. like when I when I first saw live at the El Macambo. And that's what pushed me over yeah, the I edge. You know, because person. I had heard the records and loved them, but I hadn't seen them. And I didn't yeah. see him live. And, you know, this was before the internet and before DVDs and whatever. It was just VHSs. And before, El Macambo didn't come out in the 80s. It didn't yeah. come out until after he
0: passed like away. 2000 or
3: something. Yeah, so someone... When I first started going to those jams, a guy handed me a VHS of El Combo. It was a bootleg at the time, before it was an official release. And I put it in when I got home. And from that day of getting that tape, I probably watched that tape daily for six months. And I, man, it wasn't even yes. Everything he played was off the charts, amazing. You know, I'd never heard anything like it. But even more than that, I'd never seen someone give what I what to me look like two hundred percent of everything he had into every note he played and he he looked to me like he was just he, he, if he didn't get that shit out right yep. that moment he would have exploded and that was like whoa I want to do that
0: you know yeah that was huge what was coming through him and like you said time he oh my god the greatest rhythm right hands ever yeah. now you got gigging pretty early. When did you record your first album?
3: That that ninth grade, thirteen.
0: Wow. Oh, so, and did I read that you opened a tour for a or opened some shows for BB King?
3: Yeah, a bunch. Well, so we did that record. We started playing all those gigs, and we won the award. And we needed a record because we wanted to do more gigs. So we went in maybe the worst studio of all time because we knew nothing. I knew nothing about recording, and my my parents don't. You know a middle-class family my parents struggle like every other family in the world you know we were not a, a wealthy family just a normal p- people you know so we couldn't afford to just you know go make a record like you know unlimited budget so we ended up in like this home studio making this first record when i listen to it now i i cringe you know from my tone from my playing i tried to sing one song on it because i knew i had to and it was like it's it makes me cringe but it was a start, you know what I mean. So yeah, I started making those records. We did. We ended up doing with the Rhino Cats. I did two records. That one, and then we did a live one at the Musician's Exchange. We played there two nights in a row, and had this was amazing. We had that mobile truck come, which at the time was like this unbelievable mobile truck. They don't even really exist anymore, like they used to. But it right. was like a huge semi. Yeah, they'd actually have yeah. a big
0: old like two inch machine in them, or something. It was <laughs> no, it was all two inch, <laughs> yeah. absolutely.
3: And you know. That stuff was mind-blowing to me, to be making records at 13. And, I, and and this is another important part. All The first record, I wrote seven songs on that record. I started right away realizing that whether they were good or bad, I needed to quickly, I needed to be doing my songs that came from me, not just covers, you know? And so I started writing right away. And they were pretty bad at the time. But I think it gave me a head start on, like, learning how to write songs and trying to find my voice you know so yeah it just kept putting out records and you know it built up it went it was tough you know there was the blue scene was weird at that time derek wasn't super popular but other guys started to get super popular from my age group and that was like joe Mont, not joe but uh kenny wayne shepherd and johnny lang and yep. joe was out there but he was still kind of under the, under the radar. Everybody knew who he was. Joe's, I think Joe's a year older than me. And he yeah. started when he was like 11 or 12. But yeah, he, you know, I knew who he was. We might have bumped into each other a few times, but we didn't really become friends until the last five years or so when he moved out here. And, yeah. you know, but I started seeing like Johnny Lang. I knew who he was before he got signed, you know, because I knew who all the kids were because I was in that scene. It was yeah. like, you know, me and... Derek and Joe and Johnny Lang and Kenny Wayne. These were the, the, the names that I knew, you know, kids might monster Mike Welch and um, people started getting signed. And I thought this is all oh, this is going to happen for me. You know what I mean? I'm going to, I'm going to get signed, you know? Cause I started looking at Kenny Wayne. He didn't sing. And you know, and my, you know, he still doesn't really sing. He no, doesn't he doesn't anything. sing. And I thought, man, I'm writing all my original songs and I sing and this is, I'm going to get signed, you know? And it didn't happen, you know? So I, I kept pushing and pushing, but, by the time I got to like 22 years old, I had, I had hit the wall. Because you're talking, I know it sounds ridiculous, but you're talking almost 10 years of
0: where I just did that. I just and did And were Jock you still Smith. in Florida at 22?
3: I was still in Florida. That's right before I moved here. When did you do that BB B. King tour? I did that a couple years in a row. Like when I was 16, probably 15 and 16 or 16 and 17.
0: Okay, so tell me, what did you learn playing with BB King every night? A lot. It was... It was There was a a booking...
3: Back then, there were more specialized regional booking agents. Now, it's just Live Nation everywhere. Not booking agents. I mean, like, promoters. Yeah. So, there was a company called Phantasma that promoted a lot of the southeast and and the southern region. And they liked me. So, when BB came down two years in a row, they put me on his whole southern run with him. And I got to open the show every night. I never got to play with him. I wish that would have happened. But I got to be around him every day and uh, hear him every night, and I hope he heard me. Something. Did he ever? He did. did he
0: ever go to sound check, or is he just kind of show up? No, and- he never came to sound check. And- so yeah, tell me what was it like? It was, was
3: more than just you know the feeling you get being around a guy like that. Just the presence of man, this is my hero. This is the king of the blues. This guy means more to the music that I love than anybody ever has or ever will. So you just got goosebumps just from being around him. But then. I started noticing picking up things outside of the music line. Okay, BB had diabetes, so you would see there were nights he wasn't feeling his best, and he would maybe have to get an insulin shot, or they they'd, they'd be getting him things to eat, you know, to get his blood sugars right. He'd go out on that stage. You would never know, you know what I mean? Because at this time, he was still yeah. he gets he was still standing when he played. He was you know he was old, but he wasn't you know like yeah. he was at the end of his career. So he was still you know. He still was playing. He was playing. He sounded great, you know, and he was energetic. And I start, I would see he wouldn't feel good before the show, but if you go out there, nobody would know. And then after the show, you could tell he was drained. He'd wait backstage for the line of inevitable autographs, and he would sign every last one until everybody got the picture they wanted, shook his hand, got I mean, the autograph. On the sidewalk by the back door? Either by the bus or on the sidewalk. Yeah. Or the people who, you know, had backstage passes or after-show yeah. passes. He was so incredibly gracious to everyone. And it was like, wow, this guy's the pinnacle of, of, of my world. And look, he doesn't have to be that nice. And look how nice he is. Yeah. And that made a big impression on a 15-year-old kid. Class you know?
0: act. That guy.
3: You know, and, you know, man, I found that now through, you know, geez, 25, 26 years in this, doing this, the very best the top level guys who have reached the level above reproach where you know they're the, they are the nicest it's those medium guys who sometimes are the guys who have too much of a chip on their shoulder because they don't they don't get to that level they think they should have and it and they get jaded fast and those are the guys that get the reputations for being dicks and for being hard to work with and being divas those guys at the top most of the ones i met are super nice man
0: i with, agree i agree it's pretty hard to rise up if you're fear total prick
3: dude we you know unrelated with Raphael. maybe three years ago maybe four we did something amazing we we played with mick jagger on the grammys so this was like mind-blowing we're going to back up mick jagger on the grammys you know and and also the stones to this day have never played the grammys and a lot of people not a lot of people don't know that they've the stones have never played the grammys so this was mixed like first thing on the grammys ever And it wasn't with the Stones. We were backing him up. It was a tribute to Solomon Burke, who passed away that year. And one of the first Stone singles ever was a cover of Solomon Burke, Everybody Needs Somebody to Love. So Mick was going to sing that song in tribute to Solomon Burke. So he called Raphael, because we're great at that soul stuff, you know, to back him up. How did he,
0: I mean, Raphael's very respected, but how did he know about about all the people on the planet? Don
3: Was told him about Raphael so that was cool we were at man we were at Raphael's studio rehearsing we had a tour coming up so we were we were in the middle of a rehearsal the band so we're in the studio re- reco- rehearsing and we call him ray Raphael's name is ray his his phone rings and he answers and goes out he walks out of the studio and he comes back 10 minutes later and he's like guys guys we're like what he's like that was mick jagger that just called me we're like what do you mean And he's like yeah he just asked if we'd back him up on the grammys <laughs> we all were like what like holy cow you know oh, so so we end up we have a day of rehearsal and then the grammys has a rehearsal that's like the blocking slash where they time everything out and then the next day is the grammy so it was three days so we rehearsed this center staging with mick and i purposely i think i wore a little walter shirt or something i wanted to wear like some blue shirt i wanted him to know that hey man i love blues because i know he loves the blues you know Sure enough, I wore the shirt, he came up to me immediately and was like, "You like Little Walter?" And I'm like, "I love Little Walter," you know. So we start talking about blues and inevitably in the rehearsal we start playing blues with Mick Jagger, you know, and What did you play a particular? We played song? a Howlin' Wolf slow blues and he started singing, uh, "I asked her for water, but she brought me gasoline." Right. And I can't sing Howlin' Wolf, but it was just like a yeah. you know. He starts singing "Ask for water
1: she brought me gasoline
3: the way howlin wolf would try to sing in it and he played harp you know and it was such a cool moment you know what i mean yeah and he was so nice and the one thing that struck me was too that man he still needed to be making music he loved it so much he wanted to talk music every minute he wanted to be like making suggestions he told the bass player hey when we get to this outro why don't you start walking? You know, he was like, he was just, he loves music. And you know, this is the guy, this is the biggest star of all time, one of them. And he wanted to be making music. He just loves that
0: stuff. What's it like when Mick Jagger walks into rehearsal? Does he have an entourage? Do you have bodyguards? Don Waz was
3: with him. I assume Don Waz is almost always with either him or Keith, I guess, you know, like, and he didn't really have an entourage. He has a guy who's like his roadie guy who's been with him forever. So he always has like his harps. He always has a few guitars even though he doesn't really play guitar, he always has one in case he wants to try to convey something or show somebody something. So he's got that yeah. guy who carries guitars for him and stuff. And But he was just so nice. So we did the rehearsal. It went great. We did the Grammys. It went really great. So the Grammys take, are our Sunday night, right? Yep. Monday morning, our gear comes back from Cartage, back to Raphael studio because we used our own gear and everything no backline. so i have my organs and stuff and so Raphael sends everybody a, a text in the band saying uh all you guys need to come by the studio there's something here for all of you and we're like oh okay well we had to go there anyways to pick up my stuff we get to the studio and there's a, a gift basket for every member of the band so you're talking bass drums guitar keys two background singers four horns and ray also a gift basket for our monitor guy our crew <laughs> two guys that helped with the back line and like Ray's manager. So there's probably 20 gift baskets here for each of us from Mick. Then you open up the basket, handwritten letter to each one of us personalized. So mine said, Josh, great playing with you. It was, you guys were really great. I really enjoyed that guitar fill that you played in the second verse. The drummer said Lamar. I really loved when you went to double time in the outro. So he personalized every letter and signed at Mick Jagger, and it was a gift basket of wine and cheese
0: from Beverly Hills Cheese Shop.
3: Holy it's like, shit. who does that shit?
0: You know what I oh, mean? Oh, yeah. Who doesn't out some... need
2: to
3: do that, you know? It's hey, unbelievable.
0: Man. That's great. Can we play a little bit of that tune to Solomon Burke? So it's... Everybody needs
3: somebody to love... I can't sing when he likes. Sugar to kiss, sweetheart to miss.
2: <laughs>
3: I need you, you, you. I need you. you.
0: Well, what was the fill that you played? <laughs>
2: One, I don't know.
3: I might have played like. Something like that. Something from the original recording. I love that yeah. groove.
0: songs of all time it is a great song Mick
3: I played that with Mick
0: so what was the actual performance like at the when you were on stage with him I mean first of all those shows are hectic I did that one time in my life play the American Country Awards with Christian Chenoweth and oh yeah there's no like if you have a bad cable or something like that's that's it game over they checked your amp like six hours earlier or the day of text that you don't even know are rolling your shit onto the stage That better work it was (laughs) man
3: it's amazing It was, it was amazing. Still, sometimes I, you know, it it was the Grammy, so I can find it and watch it anytime I want. And it's like, I still, I, you know, people ask me like, what's the coolest thing you ever did? I said, yeah, I played with Mick Jagger on the Grammys, you know, like that's really cool. And it was, you know, a hectic day, you know, of, of wardrobe and all that stuff. And yeah, we had done the sound check the, the day before. You know what I mean during yeah. the run through. So you're just you know you just go on stage cold, and then you're hoping yeah. you know your text did the job. You know they have
0: all the, the um, they have all the sheets with the pieces of paper that have the celebrity's name on the chair. The all room, of them. It's all, all of empty. Them all but over the chairs. You're like that person's going to be sitting there, and that person's going to be sitting there.
3: Well, the music that year was all like a lot of hip hop and a lot of Beyonce and stuff. So when we came on. We were like totally different than anything that happened that night. and Mick went full Mick, like he went all he went you know, way down to the front of the stage, and we did a false ending to the song where we we ended it, "I need you, You." you and then make those one two three four and we start again and the horns go da, 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 da. and he's he's bringing everybody up you get he's like everybody get on your feet you know and Sweet.
0: so it was like a rolling stones
3: concert it was crazy
0: man, man you know what i'm gonna be youtubing later that's awesome it
3: was you know i it was in some ways like a surreal thing and the, the rolling stones are without a question my father's favorite group of all time so he
0: was he was psyched holy you know. yeah that's what an awesome moment you obviously i mean enough about all these other people you got a great <laughs> career going now you you're signed to was it called crosscut records in crosscut germany in
3: germany yeah
0: and you're you're doing a lot of traveling over there
3: man it's been a long, you know, to borrow someone else's phrase, it's been a long, strange trip for me, you know, I I just turned 36 and I've kind of now had three phases where I did nothing but my own stuff until 22, basically, and I put out, you know, five records and toured in a van and then, you know, then I grew up, I got married, I had a kid, moved to LA and I switched that off like i completely switched it off and came out here and start playing sideman and doing sessions and i've loved that too but slowly over the last five years i've moved moved more and more towards doing my own thing again and it's i i have a completely different relationship with it than i used to when i used to do it it was my whole world it was all i knew all i cared about now It's like informed by all the life that I've lived in the last 13 years and all the other styles of music that I've played. So, like, my music now is in some ways very different from what I used to do. But it's still blues, but it's, you know. The last record I did before this new one was really complex with orchestra, you know, full string section and horns, a big 70s, lots of complex chord changes and stuff. And I wanted to make, you know, a record that no one made in a long time. So I made that. that It was called Don't Give Up on Me. And that, that record came out two years ago. And I was really, really proud of that. I'm still, still, that's the record I'm most proud of ever. I'd wanted to make that record my whole life. It was like a tribute to kind of like the Thrill is Gone era blues, to Bobby Bland's Dreamer era blues, which is when BB and these guys started coming to LA in the 70s to make records with Session Cats. So like Bobby Bland's Dreamer record, Is Bobby Bland the greatest blues singer of all time? On top of a band of Ed King, Larry Carlton, Dean Parks—I mean, I mean Ed Green on drums, like you know Richard T on keyboards—it's like the greatest side guys ever. And and it was like in some ways it was what I had become because I was this blues guy obsessed with blues, and then I came out here and I broadened my horizons and became tried to be a more you know versatile well-rounded guitar player. And when I started listening to those records again, I started realizing, wow, that's kind of what I do right now. I'm like, you know, I can sound like those session guys playing on a real blues project. So that's what I made that record for. And we, my friend Calvin who plays bass with Raphael with me, he's a great arranger. So he wrote the string and horn arrangements. We went in with full orchestra and I spent a lot of my own money to do it. And it was a, you know, passion project. And that was the last record. And Yeah. So over the last five years, I've just been following all my new influences and doing my thing. And for some reason, it started to click, especially overseas. So every year I've been going a little more and a little more. Sometimes it's interfered with other work. And that's been a problem, you know, because I don't make a lot of money when I go to do my own thing. You know, certainly not as much as I would make doing a tour with another artist, you know, or something. But it also it's 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 great for my heart and my soul and my mind and puts me in a good mood you know yeah, and
0: totally
3: so it's yeah. it's kind of come full circle a little bit this year especially 2015 was the first year in the 13 years since i've lived here where i've spent more than six months doing my own stuff as opposed to other people's music man that's congratulations I it's I think that's, that's a, a nice feeling a you know so i'm i'm working towards that being even going further that way you know what i mean like Next year looks like I'm going to be, you know, doing just a lot of my own stuff. So yeah, there's new record. Basically, I made that last record. I made the last record Don't Give Up On Me. And the critics all loved it. It's man, as silly as it sounds, it's an impressive record. Nobody made a record like it in a long time. It sounds like a $100,000 blues record, you know. And but the comment I kept getting from musicians, from blues fans, from especially the fans in Europe, man, Really cool stuff, Josh, but can you just play more guitar next time? <laughs> oh, can it be more rocking? And it was like, oh, okay, I get it. So I a little bit begrudgingly went into this new record agreeing to not so much what the label wanted, because the label over there will do, they they trust me. They're, I have a great relationship with Crosscut, and they have belief in me and what I'm going to do artistically. But my manager over there and... My booking agent over there, they all said, if you can somewhat skew more towards just playing yeah. more rocking guitar and you know going that way a little bit more blues rock, I think it would really help with bookings and, and crowds and reviews over here. And I said, okay. And they said, it would be great if you could get some guests on the record. And I said, okay, all right, cool. So I, I went to make this record almost, not like, I don't want to say I wasn't excited about it, but i probably wouldn't have made this record if no one had given me any direction i would have made a different record probably i don't know what that would have been so when it came time to make the record i started thinking how can i how can i make this record and get myself excited about it and make something cool because i like to challenge myself i like to and i want it to be like i said before it's the same thing with my soloing and my improvising i want everything i say to mean something So it's like I want it to be honest. I don't want to just put together a record where I play as fast as I can on every song because guys just want to hear me shred. That's what I did, you know, when I was a kid. You know what I mean? It's like I'm beyond that as a player now. And the way I kind of found to make myself happy with the record was I started writing the tunes and, you know... Whatever. When you write tunes, they, you become attached to them. So I started writing tunes that i become proud of, and I you know, wrote a batch, threw away some, wrote another batch, and I found the tunes. And then I realized, okay, if I'm going to do this record, I'm going to track it completely live. Everybody in the same room, bass player through an amp, no overdubs, not a single overdub. So that's what I did. We we tracked the record, all of us in the same room. Every guitar lick you hear on the record is completely live, played with the rhythm section, every solo, live. I didn't overdub any rhythm guitar. It's all
0: just trio by itself. The only overdubs are the vocals. And when Bonamassa or Kirk Fletcher, your guests? Live. They came in there with you with the band? I told
3: them that was part of the deal.
0: Nice. So the only one that's
3: not live is Charlie Musselwhite's harmonica on one song because he lives in the Bay Area and he's busy. And that was more of a, the label wanted one traditional blues song. And they have a good relationship with Charlie, and I know Charlie a little bit, so he—that was an honor to have him. Well, play, play me on one of song. the grooves from the record. Man, one of my favorites on, the, like, there's some rocking stuff. Like, there's a, there's a, a kind of Hendrixy tune where I'm like, it's like fuzz and Univibe. <laughs>
1: Me running through this minefield, babe. Pushing me left and right. I'm on the edge, babe. Nothing to show. And how long be till I blow?
2: so then the
3: bridge has second song
1: up in your glass house you watch me stumble through the night every sip you're waiting for that flash of light
3: <laughs> that's called how long. So I had two sounds in that one. I had like the the regular. Song. And then you'll see when I hit this one, it's how long bridge, and it's it's got the Les, a different Leslie sound and a little bit different. So that's kind of how I program my tunes. I'll make a bank for each song, and then however many sounds I have in that song, it'll be like one, two, three. So like let's say bank four, still searching. That's just one sound. That's a really cool sound, actually. It's got the ring mod in the background. I like that. It's like fuzz, but with it's like dirt almost. Hear it? Yeah. But I like playing like Bebobby's. Like, I like I like that sound like with playing shit like that, you
0: know.
2: Love it.
3: That's kind of how I use the pedal board on my tunes. It's like you know, verse, bridge, solo,
0: sounds like that, you know. Man, if you're gonna track a record live, it's good to have a pedal board like that. Well, that's
3: that's exactly what I did. I I came I I took a day before the re- the recording to get my sounds in order. That's kind of man. That's what we did. We set up all in the same room, and. I worked on sounds. What we did was use the, the, the setup day as rehearsal slash get sounds day. So basically, the engineer nice. just placed mics. We were all, I was sit. you know, I had like three amps. We had a, a little bit of a baffle, but not much. And then the drums were here, and the bass, had, bass player played through an old basement, cranked for like some dirt. And we just came up with the arrangements that day while he got sounds. And then after we got the arrangements, he and I worked on... Really having the guitar sounds down because I knew if I wanted to keep the solos, they had to the tones had to be great or else I'd be bumming. You know what I mean? Because you know, a lot of times you do the solo later, you can get the tone perfect later, whatever. This had to be on the fly, so it nice. was like I had to be ready and on it. So we went in the next day, and my plan was well, let's track three songs a day. It'll take us three three and a half days to get ten songs. We'll we'll cut to a click, but only the drummer heard the
0: click. Interesting.
3: Yeah, we just. Played with him because we we're in the same room. I didn't yeah. even wear headphones, you know, because we but were. I would
0: have figured you would have not used a click. I mean, you can hear a click even when it's this all live instruments. You can often still kind of hear that the band is playing to one. No,
3: nah, I, I Only the drummer heard it. And my thought was behind it was let's use a click because what I wanted to do was take. I, I was like we're just going to go in and take three or four track uh, takes of each song, and I was okay with like well if it's since it's live. Maybe the intro of one take is better. We yeah, could put wouldn't. them together. We ended up not doing that one time. Every right. every take is a complete take. But what I wanted was the vibe of when I was taking those solos. The band was pushing me. They were reacting to what I did. Oh, I yeah. wanted a truly completely improvisational record. You know,
0: it always sounds better if they're playing together.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you done? You know, done the rhythm track, and you know the guitar solo was in these eight bars. And you can even even say, okay, drummer, hit some crashes in there, you know, so it has some energy when I take my solo later. But it's not the same as a drummer listening to you take a solo and reacting to what you do, you know?
0: And so I always try to at least be doing a lead scratch track so they can use it. Well, just the the three of us. So a lot of times
3: it's just me and then, or so it's like, like, like for instance, Don't Give Up On Me, totally different record. But the rhythm section, we also track that completely live it was bass drums me on guitar and two keyboard players organ and piano and they would switch off organ piano clav rows but always two keys but we tracked all together live there was more we had more baffling and isolation going on so if we needed to you know make fixes we could but all my rhythm tracks on every one of those songs i kept the the rhythm track the initial rhythm track from the from the tracking date maybe i added more rhythm I, i didn't have any probably stacking stuff and then the solos and all that But I I like to, man, it's important to me, yeah, that stuff feels like guys played it together. All those records that you and I grew up listening to, those guys were all in the same room playing that stuff together, you know? Yeah. And it's not rocket science, man. You put good musicians in a room... I mean, look at the Wrecking Crew. Look at, the, you know, the, the Funk Brothers. Those guys didn't need Pro Tools to make their records. You know, they didn't need even a million overdubs. What they did was what they did, and you lived with it. You committed. And, man, I think you get more honest performances when you have to commit. Because if you know you're always, oh, I could just fix it later,
0: you're not going all in. So true, man. Now, wait, now speaking of rooms, my brother, (laughs) (laughs) I just, before we started recording, got the tour of your, you're, you're living the dream and you are about any day now, (laughs) any day you're about to have a recording studio in your backyard, full featured giant ass control room, giant live room, ISO room. It's crazy. It's been, you know,
3: lifelong dream. Absolutely. And I bought this house that I live in three years ago. And it was part of the plan. It had a big enough lot and a detached garage. It's been an unbelievable hard process. It's been two years of permits with the city and jumping through hoops and running out of money. But it's, uh, the, the finish line is very close. And I have so much I want to do back there. Because, man, yeah. in the scheme of things, all this music, all this. The number one thing I enjoy the most about being a musician is improvising. I like being creative. That's why we do this. And man, yeah. I, 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 I love being in the studio. I love being creative, you know? So it's like the benefits to having this studio, I can't even... They oh, stack yeah. so high, I can't even tell you them all. I mean, there's so many things I want to accomplish.
0: You know. Now, first of all, what advice would you have for someone who's maybe thinking, man, I'm, I'm going to do that in a couple of years. I'm going to build my own studio, starting with this shack in the back. Go as slow as you can. Do everything right the first time as far as
3: over-design all of it. If you think you're going to have problems with neighbors and sound, you better not cut corners. You better build a room inside a room. You better build a studio the way that everybody has built studios for 60 years. You know the, There's a reason those studios sound the way they do. Do your homework, and even though it's more expensive to not cut corners and to have two walls everywhere and, you know... This and that, and use green glue between layers of drywall because it, it adds extra sound protection. What's that? Green glue is this stuff that studios use. It goes between double layers of sheetrock. And over a course of 30 days, it hardens and expands, and it decouples every layer of sheetrock. It turns two layers of sheetrock into like four, as far as how much sound it dampens. Interesting. It's, it's super expensive. <laughs> and i needed a tube and a half of it for every sheet of drywall i have 160 sheets of drywall out there it's a thousand square feet so it's like that's why it's taken me two years to do this between permits between running out of money constantly but do it right because when it's over you'll be so much happier if you're not looking back going man i wish i would have done this and it's too late at that point you know what i mean
0: totally but it's amazing, man. Have you done a lot of have you done a lot of uh producing and or engineering in the past already? Or is this a Uh producing no. But it's
3: something I really want to do. And since the last record, since Don't Give Up On Me, I've been asked a lot more by certain like blues people, how can I help them make a record like that? A bigger record. A more Whatever, a more advanced blues record. you know what and I mean?
0: you can actually do some of that stuff now, just like you were discussing how artists would fly in and use the local cats, you could put together put together a whole band. yeah, everything. Well, I people, kinda, that was you, part, you even have a guest room in the studio.
3: I have a guest room and a bathroom. Part of my plan was to say singer- songwriter or blues artist like you know another guitar player or harmonica player or singer-writer, wants to make a record and he wants me to produce it and he wants to use my guys because I have great musicians, you know. Sure. Fly out here from wherever you live. Stay in the guest room. I'll, you know, bring the band. They'll show up every morning and we'll make a record. You know what I mean? And it'll be casual and you can, you know, artists, artists, me included, do their best work when they're comfortable. When you feel comfortable with the people you're around enough to, if you're doing overdubs, go for something, try something you maybe are not comfortable with, you know, whether it be singing and try to hit that high note or playing. And you try to play this idea that, Maybe you've never done it before, but it just sneaks out. If you're comfortable with the person, even if you fuck up, it doesn't matter. But you're going to go for more stuff, you know? So I would like to create that environment. That's part of the the long-term goal for the studio, to produce other artists. Uh, My friend Lior, who has engineered my last five records, he's one of my best friends. He produces and and mixes and engineers. And we've done records for some really cool artists at his studio. And it kind of helped me come up with some of my ideas for this, where he'll find an artist and it's kind of like that house band vibe me and my guys will go in and play for him on on these artist records and we contribute a lot to the arrangement to the the sound of the record we have a sound that we've cultivated especially me and the rhythm section that plays with Raphael, the guys i play with the most lamar and calvin we just have we play together so much we have a thing you know and I would like, you know, I want to cultivate that and bring it to other artists. Like, we played for this guy. Sign uh, me up. (laughs) Yeah, well, this guy, Alan Stone, is a good example. He's getting really popular. He's a really great singer, soul R&B thing. And we did his first record, the one that got him signed to Capitol. And, um, you know, it was like that. He came in. We, you know, backed him up. We kind of arranged most of the tunes. And, you know, I I, and Leor kind of signed him to, like, this slash production deal where, you know money is all on the back end he foot the bill i'm interested in doing stuff like that finding guys i believe in giving them the chance to make a record you know and what's see what, what happens from what's what
0: what's name alan stone alan stone yeah. what are what's one of the alan stone songs that people should check out that you guys produced that? unaware Alan unaware. stone unaware yeah cool i'll check that out myself he's great alan's the real deal
3: so yeah i think i'll be able to eventually get to where people will want to hire me to do that stuff Or people will want to just use the studio, you know, and I can hire the studio out. But also, I can do way more, you know, mail order sessions, which I get asked about a lot already. I can do way more gear-type demos and videos, which I do already a decent amount, and I get asked about a ton. And I can make a lot of extraneous income from that, you know, which I need. And then I can do more. I've gotten into more, like, teaching stuff. I've done some instructional stuff for a few companies. And like for Jam Track Central and stuff. And that stuff, man, it helps broaden my my fan
0: base. And it brings me mailbox money. And come on, dude. Ultimate man cave. Listen. <laughs> well, dude, that was the part that I, I didn't even really
3: you- think about enough. But now I realize it's going to be almost the best benefit. All that gear that's sitting over there in my living room will be in the, in the back. And then... Anytime you come over, Kirk, Kirk's over here all the time. We're shooting out pedals. We're shooting out this. We're shooting out that. Guys, are, you know, all my friends are guitar players. That's what we do, you know? So it's like, I don't, never again will it be, babe, can you turn down? Or dad, really? I'm, I'm watching TV. <laughs> or dad, I'm, never again. I can go out there and make noise at two in the morning yeah. in my boxer shorts and no one will bother me.
0: <laughs> hey man congratulations I mean to me that's a as as another musician would that's a massive achievement to have one's own full on studio
3: it, it's and you <laughs> saw it it's i try to explain to people it's a thousand square feet like it's it's so, i yeah. built another house
0: behind my house like yeah it, it's a real deal it's serious yeah <laughs> and you can make what you were talking about extraneous income here and there also. I can release
3: just way more of my own music, which is part of the plan as well. Which
0: is what you have to do nowadays.
1: Well, nowadays, I look at you
3: Joe. Gotta be releasing you know shit. Bonamassa, he releases two, three projects a year. He'll release his thing. He'll release rock candy funk party. He'll release yeah, projects cool. with female singers, and it's like man. In this day and age, if the overhead is low, which it will be now because I paid the studios paid for, you know what I mean. I, I I laid out the cash. It was my choice. You know, if I think about it in that way, where it's not like oh, I have to make this much amount in the studio every month or else I'm failing, man. I can go out there and be like, hey Kirk, let's do an acoustic duo record, man. What a ragtime blues sh- shit, you know. Yeah. And, and maybe well, it's just an EP, even. Maybe it's six tunes. We'll throw that shit on iTunes. Between him and I, it'll easily get downloaded instantly oh, yeah. by you know a couple thousand people with, that more than pays for the cost of doing it and puts money in kirk and i's pocket say i want to do a jazz ep you know i've always wanted to do a jazz ep Say, i want to do a really rocking riff rock thing i'll just do it i'll it's just amazing, go out there yeah. and do it and i can also as, as silly as it sounds i can rehearse back there oh yeah it's like i can there's so many benefits to having it like i can have guys come over and just
0: play you know baseball night back there That too. (laughs) Video games. So now you also have another breadwinner in the family, as far as I'm aware of. How does that work? Now tell me about what Riley's been doing. Your son, how old is he?
3: (laughs) Riley's 10. Um, Yeah, my son's an actor. It's a crazy life in this house right now. Um, He's been acting since he was three. He's done lots of commercials and little things, you know, over the years, but it's never been like, you know, he went to regular school. He's a normal kid. It was, you know, if he worked, it would be a couple of days, you know, he wouldn't miss school. It was just whatever he likes to act, and I, uh, we've always been
0: really supportive of that. Because How did he get I, into it so young? Someone,
3: I have a stepdaughter who's 22, my wife's daughter, Mackenzie, and um, when we first moved to LA, she was only, you know, 10 at the time, nine so still in elementary school and uh, she was obsessed with nickelodeon with disney channel she thought we're moving to la i want to be on disney channel so we nice. you know maybe we'll get her an agent and see if we can make that happen for her she lost interest in that really fast she's a photographer now she graduated college recently she's all about photography and but the agent that worked with her for a while once riley was born he started he would see riley and he'd be like man that's You got, like, the cutest kid ever. And then then when Riley got old enough to talk and stuff like that, I know everybody says their kids are the best. Riley's a special young man. He just... He's really smart and funny and just... He's special. He's just a special kid. And... The guy started telling us, man, you gotta let me send him out on auditions. He's gonna get booked immediately because he's he's kind of a small guy, so he can play a younger age than he really is. Interesting. But he's just so smart that a director just says, Hey, do this. And he says, Okay. And he just does it, you know? And he he's very well spoken, he's funny. And man, sure enough, the first thing they ever sent him out on an audition for, he got. The very first thing a it was commercial a movie. A movie? No, it was a movie with J Lo called The Backup Plan. He just played like one of her friends' kids in the movie, A very minor role. Worked one or two days, you know. And but after that, man, as he got older and things started to be, he had to learn lines and you know practice and memorize things. He got into it, and he he loves it, and it's become like. He, This is what he wants to do with his life. And who am I to say anything about that? I knew what I want to do with my life when I was six years old. You know what I mean? And I've been doing it since then. So when he says that, you got to take it seriously, you know? And at this point now, he says he wants to be a great actor, he wants to win Oscars. This is what he wants with his life. So now, last year, he got cast on this show, Scorpion, on CBS, which is like a hit show. It was the number two new show on any network last year. So of all the new shows that debuted last year, it was the second rated show on any network. So it got renewed immediately for a second year. And its numbers are just as strong this year. They're in the middle of the second season. Fantastic. He's one of the main cast members. He's the only child. It's a drama, an hour drama. And he's awesome in it. And he loves it. And it's changed our whole life because my wife is now with him 24 hours a day. You know, She takes him to the set. So my wife used to work full time. Now she's with him all the time. So, it's, wow! It's it's crazy. She's so happy. It's changed everything because she's happier now because she's with him all the time. Where she used to be at work nine to five like every other American. Now she's with her son all the time and home, yeah. and you know he does school at home or on the set. So he's he's with us more. Is he homeschooled now or is he, now he's homes? He has to be. He's I mean, just, he yeah, works three to four days a week on set, so he does school at the set. And the cool thing is, mm. his school is he he's actually not completely homeschooled. He's enrolled in a in a public school called Opus which is, I mean, this is L.A. It's made for kids that do what he's doing. So he has a real teacher. He goes to school once a week, takes tests, goes over his week's plan with her. And the rest of the week, he either does school on the set with, there's always a teacher at set, no matter what. And he has the same one all the time because they liked the teachers so that they hired him to be Riley's teacher because we liked him. That's and because so cool. he's the only kid, so it's like... There's flexibility yeah. there. He doesn't have to deal with other kids on the show. So that's Riley's teacher at the set. And then if it's Daisy's not working, he does the work
0: at home with me or with, with his mom. I'm sure he's pulling in some good checks here and there.
3: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we try not to think about it that way because it's his money. It's not our but money. It's mass, but it's national and, TV. You know. And you also hear, you know, there's just horror stories for the last 40, 50 years of kid oh, actors of who have sued their parents for emancipation, and their parents stole their money. And,
0: you know, the laws have been
3: put in place now for yeah, that. Yeah. What mean, are the laws? Is, is well, he going to have a big
0: pile of cash waiting when he's 18 or yeah, something? Yeah,
3: basically, he has a trust fund. It's a law. A certain percentage yeah. goes into this trust fund automatically
0: from every paycheck.
3: So that's that's the law. And then the rest of it, we put in savings for him You know? It's phenomenal, But like last year, my wife still worked his first season. So I would take him sometimes. She would take him. Uh, His sister would take him. This year, my wife decided I need to be with him all the time. So this year, also this year now, the second season, it's a new contract. Things change. You get more money. It's a hit show. So now my wife... Is his manager, technically, so she has to take a salary. We have to pay the gas to get to the studio every day of and course. all those things. So now it's like a full, he's a business now. It's yeah. it's changed our whole day-to-day life. It's crazy stuff. Hey, that's well, a, it's a different world than the music world. I don't, you know, it was something I didn't know a ton about. I've been on TV with artists, you know, playing Tonight Show or whatever, but it's not the same, you know what I mean? It's a whole new world. Well, congratulations to you guys and to Riley, man. Thanks, that's man. That's ass He loves it, I, and that's what's most important to me. He, he enjoys it. As long as he enjoys it, more power to him, man. He wants to be, you know, because the crazy thing is he's 10. So say this show runs five years and gets to that magic 100 episode number where things go into syndication. First off, he'll get mailbox money for the rest of his life, which almost will have him set, you know. Second off, say it hits that five years, he'll be 13 years old when it's over. He's just starting his career if this is really what he wants to do. I mean, he,
0: he this is just the beginning for him. That's it's a, it's amazing. <laughs> that's quite the start, man. Yeah. And then you know, do you have any like Riley tattoos or something? I do. <laughs> I have my Riley. B oh, there it is. Tattoo. Yeah. I will have to put a photo of that up on the Facebook page or something. It's like the joint tribute the to
3: to him and bb You know, that's yeah, I mean?
0: like a Lucille guitar with Riley written on it. Yeah, Riley B. You got to you got some serious ink, man. Where did you? Well, uh, I have
3: you know. I have tributes to my family. So, like this Marshall, it's an old school Marshall head, but it says Mackenzie in the that's Marshall script. That's my man. daughter. That's true. Yeah. This says Nikki, in, in and it's in a quarter inch guitar cable. I also have Nikki written on my back, too. So, like this arm is like my music arm, it's all guitars and stuff. Okay. And then this
0: arm is more like the kind of tattoos I always wanted, like Japanese style tattoos. Badass. Now, mm. On a much more somber note, I noticed one of your posts. Man, I obviously, it's, it's so shocking and horrible what's happened in Paris. Oh, yeah. I played the Bataclan once, and yeah. I saw you play there a few times.
3: Yeah, we played there with Raphael three times. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I mean, you spend the whole day there and, you know, eat there and sound check. and then It's, it's just, a great venue. It's, it's the hot, t- one of
3: the hottest venues I've ever played in my life. Playing there in the summer, they have no air conditioning in there. I remember Raphael threw up on the side of the stage and like, cause we wear suits, you know, skinny ties, black suits. We're moving. We got steps and it's like Motown review. And, uh, it was one of the hottest. I sweat through my suit like instantly in, on that show.
0: I remember that. It's rough sometimes. But, yeah. Yeah. Heartbreaking. And, uh, it's hard. Yeah. I mean, that place is, it's kind of antiquated too, in a cool way. It's got the old balcony and it's just a wonderful venue.
3: Yeah. It's, it's, it's more of, you know, it's more of an old school venue in, in Paris. Like it's almost like it hasn't really been updated like you said yeah. it's it just has a vibe like we played the Olympia too in Paris which is an iconic venue you know but it's been updated the Olympia is not completely old anymore you know even though it's a million years old but the Bataclan just has this vibe like it's it's older it's a little run down it's been there forever it's, it's, great it, it's just it's, a bummer like people go to music just so they don't have to think man they go to these shows to have a good time to get away from whatever they got going on and to 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 imagine something like that happen at a concert, just like I can't fathom.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely un- unfathomable, unfathomable. Does it make you at all more reticent towards uh, when? I mean, when you think about going to Europe for a fifteen city tour and leaving your family, yeah. is it is the world different now, or is like, well, it yeah, always been a risk? I don't know it's all, that
3: it's more different this week than it was last week. I mean, it's just people yeah. are thinking about it, you know, you know, but yeah. this stuff happens, but you can't just go into a ball, you know what I mean? It's really, you have no choice but to just live your life. Otherwise, they get what they want, which is to cause chaos and destruction and, and, to, and to ruin people's, you know, change their lives. And I uh, don't want that, you know? Yeah. You know, it's, man, it is, it's mind-blowing to me what, what
0: happened there. It's weird when it happens in a place where you can just picture every seat. I in can a,
3: picture every everything about the way yeah. the audience is out front, packed into the gills, and somebody yeah. walking into that and doing what they did. I, the chaos that would ensue, you know. I can picture. I can see the from the band point of view, like the band. Yeah. I'm sure they they bolted instantly out the back door, you know, right to backstage. And I would have too, you know. I'm. I mean, I'm trying to see it from all angles. It's just I can't imagine that stuff, you know. Yeah, well, and one interest, an interesting thing about the Bataclan that I didn't know after it happened, I started reading stuff. So the Bataclan is own, it's like an all Jewish family who owns the Bataclan, and they've been protested a lot before in the past by by extreme Muslims for being just because they're a Jewish organization, which was weird. And I'm a Jewish guy, so that hits me a little bit. I was that bummed me out when I started reading that. Like it makes me wonder, is that why they chose the Bada Klan or Well,
0: that's obviously the Bataclan way, and a tough topic. But before I forget, I want to just make sure i take care of some details about manufacturers like what strings who makes your piano wire dunlop dunlop cool dunlop, man great using company those
3: for the last couple of years yeah i really like their strings man they too they've gotten better Absolutely. recently too they make them here in california you know i, I like the strings yeah and then who made that uh Bless paul copy we were talking about real guitars a place in in germany yeah excuse me in Leverkusen,
0: germany yeah that thing sounds that killer. was
3: you know that's a crazy yeah because last year well no this year uh a friend in germany at a store called guitar point uh, a mutual friend of mine and joe bonamassa's let me borrow a real 1960 les paul burst for a whole month for tour so i strung it up with my 13s and i played it every night and that was a major eye-opener i'm not a les paul guy and it blew me away totally blew me away and it so much so that i I had to get something to give me that vibe, you know.
0: So you were more of a telly guy by this point, or strat turned well, telly. Yeah,
3: I'm, I'm. I was strat first, and then telly. You so know? what
0: was it that you suddenly noticed about the Les Paul that you just loved that you had to get? Well, one Well, it yourself? was that
3: one. It was magic, you know. That yeah, but thing what wasn't was it? magic. Man, it was like hard to describe. Yeah. Like trying to think, it just those real bursts. They sound like huge tellies, you know.
0: They do totally.
2: They
3: have this thing. They're huge, but they're clear. You know, they're not woofy like you hear all these Les Pauls. Yeah. You know, you can still hear every string.
0: Yeah. Do you have time to grab that guitar? Is it nearby? Yeah, absolutely. Let's Let maybe take it out on a on a jam with that. I want to hear those pickups again. And I know I played that at the Amp Show, and that was when I first encountered your piano wire.
2: Yeah, it's really clear
0: sounding. <laughs> well, man, thank you so much, Josh.
3: Oh, dude, thank
0: you, man. That thing does look epically like vintage. It's like the nitro finish or something. Oh yeah, for sure. It's
3: everything about this is completely you know to be as period correct as possible the materials are all old growth you know really old pieces of mahogany and maple and rosewood really thin nitro lacquer hide glue you know the whole whole nine yards there it is man here how clear for a les paul even with all that output neck pickups
0: Yeah, that's nothing. Yeah, but I still barely heard you use any pedals today, which I'm is mostly, cool. This
3: is this this is it. This pedal I use 90% of the time. The Chula. That's my main. It's a Love pedal. So well, the brand is Love pedal, and uh, it's it is my sound. If people want to know what my sound is, it's that Love pedal Chula. sound Les Paul, man. <laughs> here i'll put her on a pedal that's my tc that's the josh smith tone print on oh, tc cool, man.
0: i like let's, a little slap back
3: yeah a little slap let's do uh shoot i don't know let's play like a swing blues and b flat one two one two got to hear this uh Purple Plexi pedal that I got on the new board. So Love Pedal made this it's like a you know Marshall in a box, but it's an amp. So if you plug a speaker cable out of the output to his cabinet, you'll it'll power a cabinet. It's a half a watt. So it's loading the front of an amp like crazy. Wow. Yeah, and it's noisy like an amp, but so here's nothing. So I've got the gain all the way down, the tone flat. And
2: I'm going to turn the volume on like one.
3: That's not a sound I use a lot, but in sessions I gotta use it a lot for power chords and stuff. It's got the sizzle. Dude, that's with
1: the drive off.
2: And that's through a Princeton reverb.
3: It's it's so much like an amp. It's crazy. <laughs> and it
2: cleans up. <laughs>
0: Hope you enjoyed that. To learn everything you need to know about Josh Smith, head to joshsmithguitar.com. He also has a Facebook page. You know, when I ran into Josh this recent time, known him for years now since I moved to LA, but this recent time that I connected with him was at the Amp Show in Los Angeles, which is hilarious. And what I mean by hilarious is that it's just a great time. The Amp Show is put on by Lonnie Spector, it was in October. There's another one coming up in San Francisco on May 14th and 15th, I think. And the Amp Show, man, that's where an entire hotel, conference rooms, bedrooms, everything, hallways, the entire place is taken over by guitar players. And there are also no noise cops, no noise police, no decibel meters walking around like there are at the NAM show. Think about that. That's how loud and crazy it gets in there. Every room is full of different manufacturers' gear. From small builders to huge companies. They're all there, and every single room is rented out by a different guitar gear maker. A lot of amp makers. And people are turning these amps up, I'm telling you. And it's just hilarious. It's especially fun if you're a guest visiting. I think if you're a merchant crank enough. If you're a merchant hearing amps cranked up for uh, eight hours a day minimum for three days in a row, well, yeah, you might be craving some sounds of silence after that. Anyway, long story short, last time I went to this, walked in at 10.02 on like a Saturday morning, and there was Josh Smith, first guy I met. We walked around for a bit, checked out some stuff, and he played some guitars. He sounded so great and I'd always wanted to get him on the show. I'm like, Josh, you got to be on the show. So I thank Josh for generously being on the show and hanging out with us. Also want to thank Zoom for the awesome H6 recorder they supplied me with to make the show for you. Thanks again to Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com. My name is Jude Gold signing off. Keep it alive till you're
2: 105.